1: The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy. I lead Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week we ask, does pop really influence politics? Ever since rock and folk hits morphed into what we now call popular or pop music during the turbulent periods after World War II, we've witnessed a symbiosis between music music. And current events. The death of Prince, the genre bending 1980s Prince of Pop, reminds us that even the flashiest entertainers have sought to reflect on current events. His song Baltimore supported the Black Lives Matter movement against police violence. Songs in this vein have galvanised protesters since Bob Dylan railed against the Vietnam War. And we've been asked to do everything from free Nelson Mandela to feed the world, both prescriptions of The Economist, since you ask, but to catchier tunes. So which songs have moved fans, musicians and leaders to affect political change? And how has The Economist viewed these rhythm-infused events down the years? Joining me are two music cognoscenti, Oliver Morton, our Briefings Editor in London, and Michael Elliott, joining us from Washington, where he was once our Bureau Chief and is now President and CEO of the global advocacy organisation, ONE, co-founded by the singer Bono. Welcome to you both. Michael, Ollie, you chose your own tracks to discuss on the show, and we're going to kick off with your first pick, Michael. What is it and why did you choose it?
2: The first choice that I would choose is Billie Holiday's uh, incredible song, Strange Fruit, written in the late 1930s, recorded by her originally in 1939. Uh, One of those amazing songs that brought to a broad audience the absolute horror of what was going on in the American South in the pre-civil rights era. Of course, a song about lynching, and had an incredible effect that rolled over after World War II into the key period of the civil rights period in the 1950s and early 1960s. I still can't hear it without a kind of absolute chill kind of going down my spine.
1: Before we go any further, let's play a few bars. This is the very chilling Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday.
2: Southern trees bear strange
1: but what do you think changed as a result of the music? And I know it's very difficult with civil rights movements to disentangle cause, effect, correlation. Could you really put up your hand and say, apart from feeling that it it captured something, that it did anything?
2: Well, I think if you trace the whole arc of the civil rights movement through, from you know Marian Anderson not being able to sing at the Daughters of the American Revolution in the 1930s, Strange Fruit. Then you go into the 1950s and you hear the kind of classic protest songs with, of course, a kind of throwback to, uh, to spirituals as well. And you roll that into the 1960s. You can see music as a sort of affirmation and as a bringing people together. The, the music brought in a bigger constituency to care about uh, the civil rights movement that would have been there before. You had kind of heroes of pop culture of the time like Dylan and Baez. Of course, Dylan then did a kind of re-examination of his whole relationship with protest songs, as we know. But at that period, you have kind of huge
0: characters bringing in a broader constituency.
1: Oliver Morton, do you think that stands up?
0: I think that stands up admirably, uh, excellently. But I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. How do you see the continuity between that era and a later era of... Black American political music that, you know, you might trace from what's going on forwards, maybe through into maybe through into rap.
2: Uh, angrier uh, in some ways. And it, that's an awkward word to use because it's difficult to imagine anything that you could be more angry about than Jim Crow and the civil rights movement in the South. Uh, but there is a, there's a connection in the civil rights movement, isn't there, Oliver, with spirituality, with songs that are sung at church, with Amazing Grace, which, of course, is an English song, not an American song.
1: I'm going to stop you there, Michael, because we're heading into other territory and we've yet to play Oliver's first choice Get Up, Stand Up. So here you go, Bob Marley. I know
0: you don't know what life is
1: really worth. It's a board that needs a school. Are we in the same territory here as Michael laid out, Oliver, or something rather different? I
0: think we're in something slightly different here for a number of reasons. The thing about Mali and about Get Up and Stand Up more generally is that music was a way in which someone from the uh, developing country, someone from the third world, could become a global north-south and south-south superstar. And there'd never been anyone who'd really been able to achieve that before, Marley. I mean, the only other person you can think of even plausibly in the same category in the 1970s would be Bruce Lee, and that's stretching the category quite a long way. And so Marley's specific within his own life, but also incredibly generalizable idea of just non-specific liberation, self-realization. That was something that you could use as well if you were actually part of a genuine struggle, or if you were just a vaguely pissed off schoolboy in the 1970s.
1: But what would The Economist have made of of all of this? I'd just like to ask both of you what you remember The Economist saying about any of these things, or reflecting even if it didn't, I can't imagine it made the, the top leading article.
0: I remember when I was an intern here in, in 1985, I and another intern trying to convince the wiser heads around the Friday morning editorial conference that this pop concert that was going to take place at Wembley and and indeed in Philadelphia at the weekend might be something that we might want to be talking about next week. And everyone said, no, 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 it's a pop concert. That's very silly. And we came in on Monday morning, decided to put Bob Geldof on the cover and talk about Live Aid.
1: And and Michael, the Live Aid concert, which The Economist finally got round to uh, on the Monday (laughs) morning, Uh, clearly in so many people's minds, that's a marker for the embrace of popular music, of great campaigns. Is that the way that you remember it? And did it inspire the kind of work that you do now?
2: I, I think it's an extraordinarily significant moment. I mean, you have you have the original record, Feed the World, Do They Know It's Christmas, which comes out just before Christmas 1984. I've got my dates right, haven't I? And then you have the concerts in the summer of 1985 in Wembley and Philadelphia. And, you know, people can argue about the quality of the original uh, record and will do forever and ever and ever. But I have no question that those concerts and that music uh, led directly towards the absolutely epochal uh, changes in in debt relief in the next decade and then to the Glen Eagles Agreement and Make Poverty History and everything that we're working on
0: now. And remarkably, um, the, the Wembley end of the set anyway was also actually really quite a good gig. Indeed. No, Absolutely.
1: Let's play in one of those Bob Geldof mega-hits. And this is Band-Aid with Feed the World, Do They Know It's Christmas. Yes, loathed by some, but according to Michael, impactful nonetheless. That was Band-Aid Feed the World. Let's turn now to the Rolling Stones. Did we at The Economist accord them the significance that we would now think appropriate, Ollie? Well, it's
0: funny. I remember us reviewing, and I think this was an unusual thing for us to do at the time, in the 1980s, uh, a Rolling Stones gig. And the review... Ended up saying they are today the best rock and roll band in the world, which probably shouldn't matter, but does.
1: A judicious economist's conclusion there. And Michael, you chose "Street Fighting Man" as your significant track from a very significant band. Why the Rolling Stones?
2: You know, the Stones are a very interesting case, really, because one doesn't—they're a group of of artists who one doesn't usually think of as kind of principally political artists but who occasionally do something that kind of really captures the imagination, which shows... That they were of the moment. That they weren't just kind of you know they weren't just kind of rock musicians, but they were looking around and uh, keeping an eye on the world. And the Stones did that occasionally. They did it with Street Fighting Man. They did it with Sympathy for the Devil. Uh, they did it with uh, with you know a few other songs that you can kind of go around. And every you know every time I kind of listen to the Stones or see them in concert, and one of those songs come up, I'm always reminded that they're very smart guys and that they're you know they're looking at the world as well as just writing great rock music. And, yeah, it's important to be great rock music. And, you know, The Economist, over the years, I've written (laughs) some of those pieces myself, looked at the economics and business of rock music. But every so often, and the Stones are an example of this, there are plenty of other examples of this too. The Beatles, actually, also in a way... Would every so often remind you that they were very, very acute observers of what was going on in the world around them.
1: So let's hear a clip from Street Fighting Man by the Rolling Stones, a band finally deemed to be rather influential by the (laughs) economists.
0: I don't know about you, Michael Ann, but I actually I find it quite hard um to walk through Grosvenor Square without that music coming to mind, even though I've never really believed in Mick Jagger as a street fighting man.
1: But is this kind of music left wing or can it be capitalist? Can it be of the right or of a, what we would prefer possibly to call a kind of market liberal sensibility? I think back in the midst of time, The, the Economist, you two once had an argument about whether pop music uh, was. Yeah, even My spies uh, in the woodwork could go back we a did, with... yes.
0: I was reviewing a book by Robin Denslow, who was uh, a, an early voice in favour of world music and was also, I think, a journalist on, on Newsnight. Isn't that right, Mike? Yeah, he was. And Robin had written this very um, right-on history of protest and political pop. And Mike saw me uh, sitting around with it uh, in the office and pointed out to me how completely wrong-headed it was to think of pop music as being essentially left- wing and progressive in that pop music was necessarily about affirming the values of teenage consumer society. It was fun, fun, fun till Daddy takes a tea-bird away, that that's what pop music is about, that it underlines, it it works to create young consumers and spends almost all of its time talking about the personal, not the political in exactly that way. Now, for some people that the personal, you know, it's, it's not just phrase personal can be political. So you saw when David Bowie died, a huge outpouring of grief from all sorts of people. But I thought particularly from friends of mine, in the trans community and other people in various ways where we just found Rebel Rebel had been a song that had mattered so much to them because it had been about rebellion and love and not being the right person and wearing your dress. It's a great song. Yeah, but
1: you've gone back into right-onism here and I want to hear from Michael Elliott whether he stands by his critique uh, all those years ago (laughs) that pop and rock is actually more, what, free-market liberal or uh, certainly not of the radical left, which many people might assume.
2: Well, I would say, Anne, as uh, as I've grown older and wiser, I've shaded my views and I've, I've regressed back to my teenage and 20 self in, in enjoying the radicalism of pop music. But the original criticism that I had in that conversation with Oliver all those years ago um, stands. I do think there is an important strain of pop music that puts together the political and the personal in terms of consumerism and fun, uh, and enjoying being young. I've always thought that one of the most subversive lyrics in English rock music and, and Oliver, I probably used this in that argument is the opening lyric of the human leagues. Don't you want me? And the first line is I was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar, right? That's the very first words that was in 1982, I'm old enough to remember what the late 1970s in Britain was like. You know, the winter of discontent. I used to walk through Covent Garden through boarded-up shops. You were miserable, and you were kind of told to be miserable. And then suddenly, here are these four kids from Sheffield, you know, not from London or Manchester or somewhere that one thought of as vaguely hip, but from Sheffield, talking about cocktail bars. And I remember thinking, my God, The world has changed. The 1980s are really going to be different from the 1970s. And, of course, they all were. And for me, you know, that song really epitomized to me a genuine social change in Britain at the time that has always stuck with me. I remember seeing them on Top of the Pops and thinking, what the heck is this? Cocktail bars in Sheffield?
1: (laughs) I'm going to cue that in now. It's not too late to find that you think you've changed your mind. Here's the Human League cheering up mike elliot you are
2: working as a waitress in-
1: you want me from the human league by now you'll be dying to tell us which political pop milestones you think we've missed so do get in touch via twitter and tweet us your thoughts on our selection and add your own at economist radio the human league's view of social ills was glimpsed there through a cocktail glass but our next artist bruce springsteen comes from a much more overtly critical tradition and oliver you chose my city of ruins before we hear why here's a blast of brucey
0: Church door slown, I can hear the organ song, and the congregation's
2: gone. My city of ruins, my city of
0: ruins. And that's a particularly poignant and important song because, although written before 9 11, it's played at one of the Big concert straight after nine eleven and just seems extraordinarily redolent of that period now, but springsteen's been interesting throughout his career as someone who has, in fact discovered himself as political as he has become more successful he's he's almost the opposite from the uh, from the idea of sort of the the young political folky who becomes something old and sold out. he's actually tried to um incorporate different aspects of both um both political thought but also different ways of making political music from gospel to the seeker sessions that he does. He's just – he's become sort of like a one-person encyclopedia of political music and yet – to what end when, you know, your single most famous fan in America is probably Chris Christie and your biggest brush with politics is being a little bit um, a little bit irritated at Ronald Reagan wanting to have Born in the USA as his campaign tune in 84.
1: But what is Bruce Springsteen then to you, Mike Elliott, as a, a former Uh, U.S. editor. Is he Clintonian? I always think about those endless Democrat rallies that always had that blasting out in the Clinton years. May may do again if the Clinton years come back to us. Or is it Bernie Sanders? Don't close down steel towns.
2: I think it's something even more subtle and even more important than that. I mean, I think what's fascinating about Springsteen is not just the kind of really overtly political stuff that he does that Oliver's mentioned, But the really, really subtle stuff, I mean, you can look at a whole big chunk of Springsteen's work as an affirmation of the importance of working-class aspirations. Uh, I mean, when you think of of songs like Thunder Road or, or Hungry Heart or many, many other of the Springsteen classics, I mean, what they're essentially saying is... Ordinary folks, hopes, dreams, and aspirations matter as much as anyone else. And they need to be taken seriously and they need to be valued and they need to be cherished and they need to be supported. And that can be a really, I mean, forget the political rallies. That can be a really life-affirming thing. I saw Springsteen Live just a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, when you have 25,000 people in an arena singing the opening bars of Hungry Heart or of Thunder Road together, that's a big deal.
1: Your arms were in the air, weren't they?
2: Oh, it's astonishing.
1: We asked a, a lot of our followers on Twitter for their nominations. I'll come to a few more of those slightly later. But I notice here that Born in the USA certainly uh, gets quite a lot of endorsement. And James Grebby, who tweeted us, said, it's overplayed at campaign events by jingoists who don't understand the fundamental meaning of the track. Quite interesting that, at least on that view, Oliver, or whoever knows the answer to this question things sort of take on a life of their own and their meaning is miscast or recast?
0: I think that's absolutely. I mean, that's classically true with Born in the USA, which is very a very angry song about the experience of Vietnam vets. And I think, in fact, recently Springsteen has been playing it in a very different way, partly to, to recognise that difficulty.
1: Let's come then to our most poppy cover. It ran in the early years of David Cameron as Prime Minister and it showed him as a punk with a very fetching Union Jack Mohican. So here are a few mellifluous bars of the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen and we even managed to get an entire leader out of it.
0: God Save the Queen!
1: The Sex Pistols, there, and God Save the Queen, and they possibly never quite thought that they would feature heavily in a rather long lead, depend by the then editor, John Micklethwaite, about David Cameron's conservative light policies. And one of the things that was interesting about that was that nobody blinked an eyelid about that. It was a very attention grabbing cover, but nobody said you shouldn't be doing it. And I have a walk on part here in Economist History as I supplied uh, many of the lines from The Sex Pistols and The Jam. <laughs> And there was then a a long row over a lunch at The uh, Economist about whether the jam should have been in there or not. So by this stage, Oliver, we'd moved a long way from the reaction that you described. Ooh, 30 years ago to why is pop important to no you shouldn't be talking about the jam you can talk
0: about the sex pistols or vice versa. Indeed there is undoubtedly a generational shift though that question about the jam is is absolutely fascinating Cameron has said that he's a great fan of Eton Rifles which comes as extraordinary news to Paul Weller who really wasn't thinking about the Etonians when he was writing Eton Rifles. Hands up
1: I did that interview (laughs) and David Cameron then replied Eton Rifles I was in the core
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes just just <laughs> what Weller was going for is just his target audience. They wound each but, other you know, up. Yeah. I think, but that reflects something that you know, the generation that grew up with rock and pop music, and indeed with the Pistols, which is quite important because I think the Pistols mark a very a great watershed in the rock and pop story. Because it becomes a point at which, after which, more or less, everything is always possible. Whereas before, you've got these sort of senses of stories and progressions and developments. And the Pistols just set everything back to zero and said, "There's there's everything to play for," and indeed. Nihilistically, nothing to play for. Michael Elliott. I wrote a whole survey on London for The Economist in
2: 1985, cheapest I'm showing my age, in which I claimed, and I still claim, that punk rock was a kind of precursor of Thatcherism. The extent to which British punk was this entrepreneurial explosion of kids making their own music, setting up their own shops, printing their own fanzines, designing their own covers. I mean, I tell you, 30 years on, if you go to anyone in the TV industry in a senior position or the advertising industry or in a senior position or any of the creative industries in London, you can almost guarantee that they had some formative experience in punk rock. And I've always, I've always thought that it was deliciously ironic that the nihilism of punk that, you know, that was celebrated at the time was also one and the same time. A real sort of socio-economic precursor of what was going to come two or three years later, uh, with the explosion of Thatcherism and uh, and the entrepreneurial tribe of the 1980s.
1: Michael Elliott, we couldn't finish uh, without listening to you two. You've chosen "Walk On." Here it is. <laughs> Michael Elliott, we couldn't end without you choosing a U2 song. I imagine that's like trying to choose a favourite chocolate from the box and worrying about being asked about not choosing another one as you worked so closely with Bono and on his causes. You chose Walk On. Why did you opt for that one? Well, it's
2: a beautiful song that celebrates the heroism of Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the uh, the leader of the resistance in in Burma for, for so long, uh you're quite right i mean i could I could spend a whole podcast uh just uh doing my favorite u two songs that touch on political issues, but this one is really from the heart it's a it's a it's a wonderful wonderful song just as a piece of music uh i've I've visited Burma very very fond of it i've had the great honor of meeting Aung San Suu Kyi a couple of times every every leader has feet of clay we know that but the quiet heroism that she uh that she displayed for so long when she was under house arrest. Uh, was an inspiration uh, to the world, and uh, I, I can I can hardly think of a of a piece of music which so magnificently captures uh, both kind of musical brilliance and gentleness and elegance and power, uh, and at the same time really has a message of celebration of uh, of someone's great spirit. So it's a uh, it's a track that I just absolutely adore.
1: I see you've been outvoted. I'm just quickly looking through what's our Twitter here, Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2 just gets a lot of, of mentions. Uh, just while I'm on Twitter, because so many people uh, helped us in advance by giving us ideas. There's uh, uh, quite a lot of mentions of Earth Song there, uh, Michael Jackson. Captures environmental politics for me, uh, says one tweeter. A lot of Pink Floyd uh, as well as reflecting a, a mood a, of the time. The revolution will not be televised. Gil Scott Heron. I think I would vote for that because I can imagine the Economist writing a leader with with that headline and, and not even in the spirit
0: of the song. Well, we had the we we had a crosshead punning on it just about two weeks ago because I put it in. So <laughs> so you're not wrong there. I just want to come back on the on, on the U two point and on people voting for um, Sunday Bloody Sunday. I remember really vividly seeing U two play in '83 and seeing a woman in the audience reaching out towards Bono and Bono reaching down. I was right at the front of the stage as a journalist and looking looking up and seeing Greg Sky. It was an extremely powerful moment. But it goes back to something you were talking about right at the beginning, Mike, which is that when rock music has political power, it's often because it also has religious roots which is partly what Sunday, I mean that, at that point Sunday, Bloody Sunday always used to be introduced as people say there's a song about revolution there's a song about religion. This fact that rock music can be simultaneously sacred and profane which makes it politically powerful I
1: think we've got to end on a, a light note. I do quite like a question that a couple of readers sent in. What would be Donald Trump's theme song? To which Mark Slavin replied, it's my party
2: <laughs> I like that <laughs>
1: And you can cry if you want to. (laughs) Well, we're going to end the show now with a song from The Economist's Spotify playlist. Every week these days, The Economist puts together this marvellous list, loosely inspired by the stories we covered. And, Oliver, who else is the curator? A few weeks ago, we had a story on how shipbuilding had stopped in Portsmouth, a harbour in Britain. Oliver, tell us more about this track before we play it, Shipbuilding.
0: This is the great British protest song of the early 1980s. It's about the Falklands War and it was... Incredibly moving to people like me who heard it at the time. And as Mike was saying, like much political uh, pop writing, it probably achieved absolutely nothing except always to listen to it is to remember those particular days. And so it just seemed particularly apposite to this, to this story.
1: Well, before we discuss the political dimensions of that song, let's hear a few bars. This is Shipbuilding by Elvis Costello.
2: It's just a that spread around. Now.
1: Said that in for that get in the of Michael, would you vote for shipbuilding? I, I must say I'm going to stick my oar in so I always find it quite a, annoying because it seems to suggest that fighting the Falklands is a fundamentally immoral business. So some of us saw it the other way around.
2: Look, I think the the political message of the of the song you can absolutely kind of criticise, and I think there are there were cases for fighting the Falklands War. I think it's a beautiful song. I mean, I think I think it was in a, at a period in which Elvis Costello was writing some quite extraordinary stuff.
1: So, does it matter if you're right in what you say in a pop song, as long as it sounds good?
2: And that's a really tough question, isn't it? I mean, I think you that's can you ask. can enjoy you can enjoy great music even if it uh, even if it isn't always politically correct. You make a very good point there, Anne. You can look at something like shipbuilding and you can say, but wait a second, the Falklands War made perfect sense. Uh, It saw the end of a dictator in, uh, in Argentina. I think the point is, it's just a beautiful song. It was written at a time when Elvis Costello was writing just amazing songs. Uh, and that whole collection, of which shipbuilding was part, was extraordinary. And besides, you can look at you can look at pop music, and you know, even if the devil has uh, has the best tunes, you can sort of enjoy them. I mean, who was it who said, "I know the politics of Wagner, Sting, but boy, I love the opera." And you can say that about some pop music tracks too.
1: Michael Elliott, Oliver Morton, thank you both very much. And don't forget, if you'd like to send us some of your own ideas on pop music and politics and the nexus between the two, well, you can tweet us at. A- Economist Radio. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50